0: Uh, check in with uh, Tucker Carlson.
1: Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, happy Thursday. We want to open this evening with a story you may not have heard, but that you should definitely know about. It begins early last year when Joe Biden, as one of his very first acts as president, brought the United States back into the World Health Organization. We saw this we, we thought, why would Biden be so anxious to do something like that? At the time, we assumed it was just part of his larger de-orangification effort. Trump had pulled the U.S. out of the World Health Organization, so Biden had to do the opposite. Childish, but that seemed like a fair explanation. Still, it did seem a little weird because there aren't many international bodies that are more thoroughly discredited than the World Health Organization, particularly after COVID. It's a laughingstock. There's one thing it's not good at. It's public health. Since the very first cases of the coronavirus were reported in Wuhan, the WHO slavishly ran interference for the Chinese government and did it in the most cartoonish and obvious way. First, WHO claimed there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission of the virus. Remember this? They cited Chinese officials who were obviously lying, and we now know they were lying. Then, when it became clear the virus probably came out of a Chinese government lab, WHO sabotaged the investigation into the origin of the virus by appointing a gain-of-function researcher to lead the investigative team. Pretty shocking if you think about it. And to this day, the WHO still has not acknowledged it did any of that, though it definitely did. Instead, they've continued to praise China's response to COVID as, quote, transparent, which is the one thing it's not. It's almost amusing. But again, it's weird if you think about it. Why would Joe Biden want to join a group that every informed person laughs at? Well, more than a year later, we think we know the answer. The Biden administration is very close to handing the World Health Organization power over every aspect, the intimate aspects of your life. So imagine the civil liberties abuses that you lived through during the COVID lockdowns, but permanent and administered from a foreign country. Here's what we're looking at tonight. This January, the Biden administration submitted a series of proposed amendments to something called the International Health Regulations, the IHR. Now, the Biden administration's amendments, along with those from several other countries, will be combined to create a new global pandemic treaty. We need a pandemic treaty. That treaty is set to be adopted starting this weekend in Geneva at the World Health Assembly. Now, the full text of the treaty is not yet finished, but a WHO working group has summarized what it's going to look like. The document begins by promising to restrict the WHO's authority just to pandemics. Calm down. It's just pandemics. Quote, WHO secretariat to play the leading, convening and coordinating role in operational aspects of emergency response to a pandemic. End quote. So don't get paranoid. Someone needs to coordinate the pandemic response globally because it's a global problem. Got it. Settle down, conspiracy nut. But here's the catch. The World Health Organization gets to define what a pandemic is, when a pandemic is in progress, and how long a pandemic lasts. Then you read the fine print and you realize the WHO will have total authority over emergency operations in the United States if there is ever a, quote, public health emergency. Huh? What qualifies exactly as a public health emergency? Well, they don't define that. But they get to, they get to decide what a public health emergency is. And then they have total authority. You can see where this is going. Now, the Biden administration has made certain that unelected bureaucrats at the WHO have total authority to declare and define public health emergencies. They did it explicitly. The White House eliminated a provision that would have required the World Health Organization to, quote, consult with an attempt to obtain verification from the state party in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring in. So, as originally written, they couldn't do anything without the permission of their member countries' governments. But thanks to the change that the Biden administration put, pushed, effectively there is no limit at all on WHO's power. And then it gets worse from there. The treaty also mandates a "quote whole of government and whole of society" approach to pandemic preparedness. Hmm, think about that. Every society is always preparing for a pandemic, and that means there will not be a moment ever when the WHO doesn't have operational control over so-called public health matters in this country. Now, what's that going to mean exactly? You've already guessed it's not really about public health. It never is. But before we tell you what exactly it's going to mean, you should know that none of this is going to be optional. Thanks to an amendment from the Biden administration, the treaty contains a provision for a Compliance Committee, ooh, there's always the stick. It provides that every member country in the WHO must, quote, inform WHO about the establishment of its national competent authority responsible for overall implementation of the IHR that will be recognized and held accountable. Under this treaty, WHO members must enforce orders from the WHO. They have to act as the heavies for the WHO. And if they don't, they'll be sanctioned. The White House is going to be the muscle for the director of the World Health Organization. So who is the director of the World Health Organization? Well, that would be a former member of Ethiopia's Marxist-Leninist party called Tedros Adhanom Gheibrasis. He once led the Ministry of Health in Ethiopia. He's not a physician. But as the head of the Ministry of Health in Ethiopia, for political reasons, he covered up three cholera outbreaks, the opposite of what he's supposed to do. He wrote off cholera as simply acute watery diarrhea. Again, he's not a doctor, so maybe he didn't know, but he did know. He did it for political reasons. Those outbreaks were taking place among disfavored groups. Then Tedros tried to appoint Robert Mugabe, the racist murderer who ran Zimbabwe into the ground, as an international goodwill ambassador for public health. Now, at the time, Zimbabwe was the poorest, most mismanaged, most racist country in the world. And yet Tedros thought he should be a goodwill ambassador for public health. These are some of the reasons that Tedros, needless to say, is a close friend of Tony Fauci's.
0: So uh, Tedros is really an outstanding person. I've known him from the time that he was the Minister of Health of Ethiopia. I mean, obviously, over the years, uh, anyone who says that the WHO has
2: not had problems has not been watching the WHO. But I think under his leadership,
3: they've done very well.
1: Yeah, they've done very well. He's, a, he's an outstanding person, that friend of Robert Mugabe's. And because he's such an outstanding person, we are days away from giving him operational control over our government's public health system, the one that you pay for and thought you controlled in this democracy. So what will this operational control mean? Let's be specific. Right off the bat, the treaty demands, quote, National and global coordinated actions to address the misinformation, disinformation, and stigmatization that undermine public health. Oh, here we go. Right to censorship. People are criticizing us, and for public health reasons, that can't be allowed. If you criticize us, people will die. So you saw yesterday the Biden administration, in the face of universal laughter and derision, had to fire the head of its new Ministry of Truth. But they found another way to do it. Quote, WHO secretariat to build capacity to deploy proactive countermeasures against misinformation and social media attacks. Oh, are you following this? So they're gonna get to censor anybody who doesn't agree with what they do as they control the intimate details of your life. And they will control those details. Under this treaty, the World Health Organization will get to establish vaccine passports and regulate travel. World Health Organization will, quote, develop standards for producing a digital version of the International Certificate of Vaccination and Prophylaxis. Okay. So you may be thinking, well, it's just about COVID, and I went along with mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports at the time. How bad could it be? (laughs) first of all if you went along with that you should be repenting right about now but it's not just about covid because who will be in charge of quote the digitalization of all health forms world health organization will also quote share real-time information about travel measures so you're going to find out exactly when you're allowed to get on a bus or train or airplane or how about your bicycle will they regulate that too maybe Now, the World Health Organization has sought this authority for years. Of course, who doesn't want more power? Here's Tedros back in April of 2020.
4: People in countries with stay-at-home orders are understandably frustrated with being confined to their homes for weeks on end. But the world will not and cannot go back to the way things were. There must be a new normal. A world that's healthier, safer, and better prepared. Okay, so
1: there's a guy with a long and documented history of subverting public health, who is clearly a liar, who is acting as an agent for the Chinese government. And you have to ask yourself, did I vote for that guy? Is he one of my elected representatives in this democracy? How did he get power over where I can travel and when? Good question. And it's not just lockdowns that that man, Tedros, would be able to dictate. The World Health Organization would also assume total control over vaccine manufacturing and distribution. We're not making this up, by the way. According to the document, WHO would create a, quote, truly global end-to-end platform for vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, and essential supplies, shifting from a model where innovation is left to the market to a model aimed at delivering global public goods. And we're not making it up, that's a verbatim quote. It actually says that no more innovation, centralized control. According to the treaty, those vaccines and essential medicines, because it gets better on every page, will be distributed not on the basis of need, but on the basis of equity. Equity is, quote, it says, critically important for global health, both as a principle and as an outcome. That's what the treaty declares. Therefore, the World Health Organization will ensure, quote, equitable and effective access to vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and essential supplies and for clinical trials. And that means, again quoting, healthcare workers and the most vulnerable will have priority access. Not the sickest, not the people who need the medicine most, but the most vulnerable in a larger sense. In other words, favored groups get medicine first. There is no graver violation of medical ethics than this. Every physician practicing in the United States promises not to do what you just heard. And it would become mandatory under this treaty. And by the way, that, the language you just heard, that is exactly the justification that officials in several states threw out when they were caught passing out vaccines based on race. This is a power grab. It's dangerous. It is, by the way, a reward to the very people who screwed up two years of COVID response. Oh, let's give them more power. This is lunacy. And people who know that it's happening are upset. 125,000 people in the UK have just called for a referendum on this treaty. They signed a petition. In democracy, that would matter. You get to petition your government, you remember, but the British government doesn't care what they think. And now there's the Biden White House. In this country, there's been very little pushback because most people have no clue this is happening. We didn't until a bunch of people bothered us about it. You should look into it. We did and we're shocked. We didn't know because our media isn't covering this. It's not on the front page. Why is that? (laughs) You have to ask yourself. There is at least one planned legal challenge to this, and it comes from Stephen Miller's group, America First Legal. Here's what's at stake, not just your health, But the way that you live and your relationship to the government, representative government requires your consent. You alone have the right to choose your representatives, your style of government, the laws under which you live. That is called democracy. And this eliminates it. Dr. Scott Atlas has been following this for a long time. He's a former member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. He joins us to assess. Dr. Atlas, thanks so much for coming on. I feel a little embarrassed that we haven't been on this earlier. This has received virtually no attention. It's-
0: okay, I'm not a big fan of, of Scott Atlas. Count he me quite skeptical of the things that uh, Tucker Carlson is saying there. So. Snopes, you'll be glad to know that the liberal fact-checking site Snopes has an article on this. Is Biden preparing to give sovereignty of the United States to the WHO? The U.S. is working with the WHO's other 193 member nation states to prepare for another global pandemic. So here's the claim. In spring 2022, Joe Biden's administration was preparing to give the country's sovereignty over health issues to the World Health Organization, Granting the organization the power to implement its own lockdowns, and this is false. Claims stem from talks in 2022 among WHO's member states, including the US, around amending existing international health regulations. Uh, and, and Scott Atlas has just had a terrible, terrible uh, COVID. And uh, overall, the WHO did a better than average job with regard to COVID. So it's certainly a flawed institution, all right? It, it does have to get along with big powers such as China. There were compromises, but the WHO, for all its flaws, did did a better-than-average job. So there's no official version of what the WHO was calling a Pandemic Preparedness Accord. The Biden administration's released its own ideas. They did not include a plan to give the nation's sovereignty over to the WHO, the did not offer ways for the WHO to gain new authority to implement lockdowns. So in May 2022, rumors surfaced claiming the U.S. President Joe Biden was planning to give the country sovereignty over health issues to the WHO. Now these rumors stemmed from genuine proposals that United Nations members were discussing at the time to strengthen the world's preparedness against global pandemics. They grossly exaggerated, distorted, and misinterpreted the actual impacts of the proposed ideas. So Deborah Burks, former COVID advisor to Donald Trump, is out with a new book. And uh, one of the people that she really takes aim at is this uh, Scott Atlas. So one popular claim held that proposed amendments to existing guidelines would grant WHO the authority to lock down countries. Former Republican Rep Michelle Bachman popularized this assertion. She discussed the issue in an interview with Steve Bannon. So she says this would give the WHO decision making authority to intervene in US government policy and in any nation of the world without our permission. Now, it's true that almost 200 countries are members of the WHO, but the claim that these talks will result in WHO having new authority to implement lockdowns in the United States or any other country, that is untrue. Right? They're preparing an agreement to detect and report potential public health emergencies worldwide. So, Tucker is all about the outrage porn, whipping up outrage. Sometimes I sympathize with him i think he's off base here so what leaders are working on amendments to the international health regulations to strengthen the world's responses to the next pandemic so what's going on in our borders Been there
1: he's been embedded with a tracker in the texas department of public safety in the big bend region of the state bill mojan joins us now from eagle pass to tell us what he saw hey bill
3: Hey, Tucker, good evening to you. That's right, look, we've been covering the border for the better part of a year straight now, but there's one area we had never been to, and we went to it. It's the Big Bend sector, and we wanna show your viewers what we experienced there. Take a look at this video. This is the Big Bend sector near Van Horn, Texas, West Texas. It is some of the most unforgiving, inhospitable terrain you will find on the southern border. Steep, rugged, mountainous canyons, as remote as it gets, literally the middle of nowhere. Looks like a Martian landscape in some areas. Blistering hot. Believe it or not, yes, illegal immigrants cross through here because they do not want to be caught. Take a look at this second piece of video here. We embedded with an elite Texas DPS tracker, as you mentioned. His name is Sergeant Jimmy Morris. And what he does is he analyzes footprints on the ground and other signs left behind by illegal immigrants. And it is remarkable watching him work. The smallest little uh, uh, you know, footprint or design on a shoe he is able to look at in the sand and follow it for miles, hours, days. As we were with him, we eventually got on the trail of some drug smugglers, drug mules, uh, and he was able to follow their footprints for hours. Eventually, we get into a brushy area. The trail gets really hot. He starts running through the area, and I want to show, show you what we started finding. Take a look at this third piece of video here. We started coming across numerous bundles of drugs ditched in the brushy area. What that meant was the car, oh, those smugglers were nearby and they were ditching their dope because they knew Border Patrol and Texas DPS was on top of them. So we started finding five bundles of those drugs in that brushy terrain. Moments later, we ended up finding five illegal immigrants, the smugglers, who were bringing all of that dope. Take a listen to what the Texas DPS tracker had to say about how often this sort of thing happens. How often do you see the sort of thing out here?
4: Two weeks ago, sir, we saw it on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and for sure every week.
3: And Texas DPS told me this afternoon they got four more bundles of drugs out there in Big Bend sector. They also tell me they frequently find illegal immigrants wearing these. These are carpet shoes. Essentially, they're slippers that they put over their shoes. And as you can see, there's carpet on the bottom of them. What that's designed to do is mask their footprints in the sand. They know Texas DPS and Border Patrol are trying to track their footprints. So this essentially masks it, doesn't leave anything behind. And Tucker, it just goes to show how far some of these illegal immigrants are willing to go to uh, evade apprehension. We'll send it back to you.
1: Bill Maluchin, I I don't know if we would know half of what we know now were not for your reporting. So thank you for that. Thank you. So you've seen a theme and it's been accelerating in recent months. Suddenly people who disagree with Joe Biden aren't simply wrong or misguided or even bad people. No, they're domestic terrorists. Biden has been saying that the people around him, Ron Klain, the chief of staff who actually runs the United States government, has been pushing this theme. And now the House of Representatives has just passed a bill that gives the government sweeping new powers to monitor, harass and imprison these domestic terrorists. People who disagree with Joe Biden. We've got a tale straight ahead.
0: So Leponia says uh, Ford just accepts anything that uh, Snopes tell him. Does Ford ever trust his sources? Yes, I listened to Tucker Carlson, and I read Snopes. And seriously, of the two sources of information, even though I'm ideologically much closer to Tucker Carlson, I I prefer Snopes on this particular matter. I I just find them much more compelling. Do you really think that this agreement is going to give the WHO power to implement lockdowns in the United States or any country? I mean, obviously, that's not going to happen. So... I put three debunkings to what Tucker Carlson was alleging in the video description. So you can read links to three different sources, including uh, Snopes, but also a couple of other sources. We've got uh, leadstories.com. If you can't trust leadstories.com, who can you trust? And we've got something here from Int. Okay, INT dot something. I mean, if you can't trust INT, COVID shows why United Action is needed for more robust international health architecture. Bro, are you opposed to more robust international health architecture? And when Tucker says WHO is a group that every informed person laughs at, that's absurd. The WHO is a flawed organization. It's made mistakes. I'm a flawed organization. I've made mistakes. We're, We're all sinners. Right, we've all spilled our essence on the dusty soil. So, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Right, main main topic tonight: How can Republicans regain elite status? And uh, there's a new book out about Watergate. So that's kind of the background to this story. So Watergate happened about 50 years ago. And Christopher Cordwell wrote about it, this new book, in First Things magazine. So Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff. He's a journalist. He's come out with an 832-page book from Simon & Schuster. You can get the Audible version for about 15 bucks. So the Watergate scandal began in 1972, almost as soon as Richard Nixon had left Washington. The politicians, lawyers, and journalists who had rallied to oust him began recording for posterity. An account of why their actions had embodied, not subverted, American democracy. Their account prevailed. In the half-century since Watergate, there have been some skeptical retellings of this complex story. Some of them well-documented, some of them big uh, sellers. Historians have tended to dismiss them as crank jobs. So looking at the dozens of White House aides shamed and jailed for their pilfering and dissembling, This new book reveals doubts about the official story. Labeling Watergate as a criminal conspiracy implies a level of forethought, planning, and precise execution that isn't actually evident at any stage of the debacle. Instead, the key players slipped, fumbled, and stumbled their way from the White House to prison, often without ever seeming to make a conscious decision to join the cover-up. So for all the allegations about the deep state and uh, the administrative state, Much of what the deep state, the administrative state, does is slipping, fumbling, stumbling, and bumbling. Yeah, Richard Nixon abused his power. Whoa, no white kilt is streaming from the room adjacent to Luke's. Communism is just a right-wing conspiracy. Never happened, according to Ford. (laughs) Only the gospel of truth falls from the mouth of, of Tucker. I mean, the original source, bro. I just heard about this story right now on Tucker Carlson. Uh, How can I be properly prepared? Nixon did nothing wrong. Yeah, no white guilt's just missing the poster of Israel. All right, Nixon abused his power. He did things wrong. Hundreds of well-trained minds working in newsrooms and legal chambers across the country established that beyond any shadow of a doubt. But was Nixon especially corrupt by the standards of American politics? All right, I'm skeptical of that. Was he more corrupt than the people who drove him out of town in disgrace? I'm skeptical. Was his corruption sufficient to justify wresting from the American people their right to choose their president? I'm highly skeptical. Was the corruption really the reason the presidency was taken from Richard Nixon? These questions have grown more troubling as the years have passed. And I can see, see the, the trouble all over your face right now. And speaking of trouble, a
1: party in Congress officially designated the other party a terrorist organization. We are in the middle of a civil war. So that hasn't happened in over 150 years. Typically, the parties argue about things. Sometimes they get mad. They call each other names. Sometimes they get really mad and call each other really bad names. But one thing they don't do is use law enforcement to crush, harass, arrest voters on the other side, because that's not democracy. That's tyranny. But we've just moved one step closer to tyranny. In fact, we may already be there thanks to what the House is calling an anti domestic terrorism bill, as if murder wasn't illegal already. It just passed the House and it instructs the FBI to, quote, analyze and monitor domestic terrorist activity. So, how are we defining that? Well, of course, we're not defining that. It instructs the FBI, in other words, the largest law enforcement organization in the United States, to monitor Joe Biden's critics. It dramatically expands the definition of domestic terror to include hate crimes, whatever those are. It also mandates that the FBI and the DOJ conduct an assessment to determine whether white supremacists have, quote, infiltrated federal, state and local law enforcement agencies. Now, what's a white supremacist? They don't define that either. So if you're going to pass a law that empowers people with guns to make arrests, you probably should define your terms, otherwise it will be abused, unless the law was designed to be abused, and this one was. So under this law, these law enforcement agencies must issue biannual domestic terrorism reports to Congress with a focus on the threat, quote, posed by white supremacists and neo-Nazis, because it turns out the only form of Race discrimination in the country comes from one group, and they don't vote for Democrats. That's the whole point. That's why the bill doesn't mention BLM or NT for black nationalists. And as we said, it doesn't define white supremacy. And that's very odd, because white supremacy is the only thing lawmakers talked about as they voted on this bill. Recent white supremacist attacks have reminded minority communities across the country of a dark history we have not yet escaped. We have
4: witnessed far too many other acts of domestic terrorism. We are at an important crossroads in this country.
0: With white supremacy on the rise and violent extremists fueling each other's bigotry and hate, we're seeing an alarming increase in domestic terrorism fueled by this hatred.
1: Now, keep in mind, when you hear people like that, and those are some of the worst and most limited people in our society, but still they're elected members of Congress. When you, when you hear them attack white supremacists and white supremacy, you should know that their definition of those terms is probably different from yours. So if you were to quote Martin Luther King Jr., whose monument stands on the mall and say that the U.S. government ought to treat people based on who they are and what they do and not how they look and how they were born, should assess people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. If that's your position, you are, by definition, according to the people you just saw, a white supremacist. This is scary. Congressman Cory Bush of Missouri spelled out the purpose of the bill, which, of course, is entirely political. Quote The Republican Party has become the party of unfettered white supremacist violence. So there's only one Republican who voted for this bill, and that's a man who's become completely undone and who's whose total destruction as a man really does deserve your pity. And that's Adam Kinsinger. Here's why he said he voted for it.
3: People like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, people like Matt Gaetz, Mo Brooks, the folks you think about, um, they are almost leading. Well, I, I would argue that they are leading the Republican caucus. And so Kevin McCarthy, Elise Stefanik, instead of leading, as you know their title, leadership should suggest they do, they basically are tolerating this all in the name of hopefully I become speaker someday. You can't fundraise, you can't feed, you can't live on fear because eventually you're going to create fearful people and fearful people can do really bad things. And I think that's what we saw in Buffalo.
1: So they're continuing to tell you in the face of all available evidence that the mass murder you saw over the weekend in Buffalo was inspired by hateful right-wing rhetoric when in fact that mass murder was committed by someone with diagnosed mental illness that the adults around him apparently ignored. Okay. So you saw a shooting by a crazy person that has been hijacked by partisan forces to crush political dissent, to attack civil liberties in this country. You should care about that. Nicholas Giordano does. He's a political science professor, a host of the PAS Report podcast. He joins us tonight. Professor, thanks so much for coming on. What do you make of this legislation?
4: Well, it's insane. And when we look at the evidence of the last year since we last spoke, you have the Department of Justice that actually issues a memo targeting parents under the Patriot Act as potential domestic terrorists. You have the Department of Justice creating a specialized domestic terror unit. You have Secretary Mayorkas creating the Disinformation Governance Board. Now that's been suspended for 75 days. It will be rebranded as something else, I can guarantee that. And then you have President Biden himself labeling nearly half of America as extremists. And it's no coincidence that extremist and extremism appear in the National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism 27 times. Now, what makes it interesting, if you go to the Senate version of the bill, there's actually a provision regarding COVID-19 hate crimes, and it specifically states that racially discriminatory language regarding COVID-19 pandemic, meaning if I say it's from the Wuhan laboratory, then I could potentially be labeled as a domestic terrorist, and this is the problem. When you look at these bills and you have to cross-reference them with uh, previous statutes, We already have over 50 statutes regarding terrorism. We have dozens of statutes regarding hate crimes and organized crime. There are enough laws on the books today to cover this, yet they want to expand the power of the and authority of the government, and this is going to be used to target political opposition. It's going to be a pretext. And people should be saying, hey, wait a minute, we were promised under the Patriot Act that you want to monitor and surveil Americans. How well did that work out for us? And so maybe we should slow the brakes on this. And where are the Republican leaders speaking out and pushing back against this? Because this was all a year in the making. This is These are the capabilities being enhanced under the national strategy. The whole thing is a lie. It's really simple. What percentage
1: of racially motivated crimes and violence in this country are committed by so called white supremacists? Hon- honest question. Like, well, honestly, what percentage? Is it the majority? Don't think it is. And,
4: so this whole thing is basically. Well, they, on they'll lie. never release that information. Right. And, right. No, they won't. And I appreciate it. But the biggest problem is that if this program... Sorry, I think we just got cut off there. Professor, thank you so much. If this program goes into effect, it's never going to be undone.
1: No. Well, that's for sure. It won't. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. So the Senate just passed a $40 billion aid package for Ukraine. The bill is now headed to the president's desk. Chip Roy is one of the few members of Congress who opposed it from the very beginning. He joins us next to tell us why.
0: Okay, so let's go back to the story of Watergate. So... Why were the American people deprived of the man that they voted in as president? Why did they get a choice? Why, why did the elites coalesce around removing Nixon from office? And you saw the same sort of thing happening to Donald Trump. And Republicans don't have a strong future unless they learn to bring more elites, more people like Kyle. All right? We need to bring the Kyles back into the Republican fold. So civil rights brought the Democratic Party to an outright rupture between its urban social democratic core and its southern segregationist wings. Richard Nixon took the presidency by a hair in 1968, winning 43% of the vote in a three-way race. So in 1972, he had the widest margin of victory in the history of American presidential elections. And then in two years, he was removed from office. The bottom fell out of his life, the presidency, and the American constitutional system. So Americans overwhelmingly voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. Then he was removed from office. Uh, how is that democratic? So two long-serving aides, Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman and Horderman's deputy John Ehrlichman resigned fairly early on in Watergate, leaving Nixon bereft of trustworthy advice. The Democratic Party-controlled Senate began hearings. The Justice Department appointed a special prosecutor, the Harvard Professor Archibald Cox, who, to Richard Nixon's shock, announced he would investigate not just Watergate affairs, but other possible offenses. So once you have a special prosecutor, they can expand and expand the scope of their investigation. They have unlimited resources. So anyone who investigates you with unlimited resources is going to find some dodgy behavior. There were times when I was attention-seeking. There were times when I was callous and cruel. There were times that I exploited people There have been times that I've been less than honest and trustworthy. So I sure hope no one with unlimited resources ever gets to investigate me. So the summer of 73, Alexander Butterfield, Nixon aide, revealed that Nixon had installed a secret tape recording system in his office in February 1971, that every moment of every discussion had been captured for posterity. So it's the tapes that give the Watergate scandal its extraordinary texture. Thanks to them, Nixon is not just the most notorious of American presidents, but also the most intimately known. Much of our modern conception of how presidency, any presidency works comes from listening to Richard Nixon react as his own presidency skids off course. So J. Edgar Hoover took control of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1924. Shortly after the founding of the Secret Service in the Soviet Union, the two organizations were not nearly as dissimilar as Americans would like to believe. The FBI would be Hoover's personal investigative apparatus for the next half century. He had secret files with dirt on Washington insiders and Hollywood celebrities. Presidents feared him, presidents courted him, and they used the FBI to cast their investigative net wide on their political enemies. So Hoover assigned agents to gather evidence of Martin Luther King's adulteries, and they communicated that information to Martin Luther King's wife. During the Nixon administration, Horderman asked Hoover for a rundown on the homosexuals known and suspected in the press corps and Hoover complied. So at many junctures in its centuries long history, the FBI has sown more corruption than it is rooted out. Now Nixon was lured into trouble, not by the FBI's activity, but by its passivity. So well aware of Lyndon Baines Johnson's widespread use of FBI agents for black bag jobs and illegal break-ins, Nixon assumed he could use the agency that way himself. So you see other people using a woman or using an agency or using tactics, and you just assume, oh, I can do the same thing. But not necessarily true, because people change, seasons change. Wait, thats isn't that a Gloria Estefan song? Gloria Estefan... Uh, Seasons change. What are the the lyrics? Anything for you. Okay. Gloria Estefan, she, she nailed this. Anything for you, though you're not here. Since you said we're through, it seems like years. Time keeps dragging on and on and forever's been and gone. Still, I can't figure what went wrong. I'll still do anything for you, but that. I won't do that one thing. I'll play your game. You hurt me through and through, but you can have your way, except for that one thing. I can pretend each time I see you that I don't care and I don't need you, and though you'll never see me crying, you'll know inside I feel like dying. Wait, there's nothing. There's nothing in this song that's that's apropos. I, I just went. Where does Gloria Estevan talk about seasons changing, guys? What's that that song that that's that, that's so so appropriate here? What what were her hits? Rhythm's going to get you. Here we are. What's the most famous song? The rhythm's going to get you. Can't stay away from you. Don't want to lose you. Turn the beat around. Coming out of the dark. Seasons change. Feelings change. Isn't, isn't that Gloria Estefan? Come on. Seasons change. That's expose. Oh, man. Everlasting love. Gosh, I, I'm totally distracted now. All right. What is it? Gloria Estevan. One, two, three, four. Come on, baby. Make it happen. Spreads by droplets, Luke. 1.4 billion pounds of government cheese. Maybe it gets handed out. Inflation hits Mexico, South America. Look out, ladies. Laura Luma and Gitmo is too good for rhino. She then shouts out Dinesh D'Souva's documentary, 2000 mules all right so nixon seasons who sings about seasons change feelings change i i guess that's expose seasons change feelings change expose lyrics and uh the reason for emptiness time just runs away you dream again it seems in vain when seasons change seasons change feelings change it's been so long since i found you Yet it seems like yesterday. Seasons change, people change. I'll sacrifice tomorrow just to have you here today. Forever seems so far away. There's time for love and for play. See, if only this song had come out and Richard Nixon, and not just heard it, but internalized it, that seasons change, feelings change, and that woman or that FBI that you used to be after use to do your black bag jobs, you can't use it anymore. So, So Nixon assumed he could use the FBI the same way that LBJ used the FBI. So you may get a girlfriend and you may assume that you can use her the same way the blokes before it used her. But she may suddenly say, oh, no, I found Jesus. I'm not going to do that anymore. You've had enough BJs. You're out of luck, buster. Right. So possibly Hoover ran out of energy, possibly understood that within the federal bureaucracy, the balance of administrative, investigative and above all judicial power had shifted decisively to the Democratic Party. So seasons change, feelings change, elites change, administrative, investigative, and judicial power shifts. And when the other party has it, you're going to be much more careful of what you do. Stymied Nixon's aides decided to replicate the FBI's services on a do-it-yourself basis. So they used irregulars loosely associated with other investigative agencies from the CIA to the New York Police Department to break into the Brookings Institution, a Washington think tank. They broke into the office of the psychiatrist who was treating Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, that, that made me. I had 10 years of therapy, but I'd often ask my therapist, hey, don't, don't, don't make notes about this, what I'm about to tell you. All right, and they broke into the Watergate. So Hoover died of a heart attack in the spring of 1972, weeks before the Watergate break-in. That solved certain administrative problems, created others. Then when Nixon nominated interim FBI Director Patrick Gray as Hoover's permanent successor, uh, Felt, Felt was infuriated. So it did not cross my mind. He said the president would appoint an outsider to replace Hoover. So who was, who was Felt? He was an FBI agent. He was deep throat, Mark Felt. That's who we're talking about, mate. Right? So you have a secret police agency that's grown up within the federal government, amassing files on 500,000 Americans. they carried out counterintelligence operations on 2,000 of them. It sought compromising information on the country's most powerful citizens, showed signs of becoming a tool less of the government as a whole than one of the parties vying for control of it. So the disinheriting of Hoover's entourage was one of Richard Nixon's most significant achievements, but Mark Felt did not approve. So Patrick Gray, an outsider, was brought in. He was a capable executive of Nixon loyalist, a mostly upright man type of person, type of outsider you'd normally trust to reform a dysfunctional bureaucracy but he concealed Watergate evidence on the assurance of others that it implicated national security. He had no inkling of the administrative war of succession that Hoover's death had unleashed. So Patrick Gray naively felt that keeping Mark Felt up to date on the details of the Watergate probe was the way to go. Then Felt began approaching Bob Woodward of the Washington Post with compromising information about his superior, Patrick Gray, hoping to win for himself the FBI directorship through Gray's disgrace. So, Mark Felt knew Bob Woodward before the scandal broke well enough for Bob Woodward to have had visited Mark Felt on a number of occasions at his home. So everything we have found out in recent decades about the press's role in Watergate has confirmed what Edward J. Epstein suggested at the time. There's not really any such thing as investigative journalism. The process through which stories are crafted has little to do with our familiar media flattering mythologies. So all my greatest scoops, all my biggest hits, all my great investigative work is primarily being given to me by people often with an agenda, and then I just follow up. So where does investigative journalism begin? Not with a journalist hunting down a source. right? I've gotten my biggest scoops simply from someone calling me up to interview me, and then they give away a big scoop about the mayor of Los Angeles, or someone who's with whom I've had a lot of conflict. And he says, hey, you want to be friends? And I say, yes. And then he gives me the biggest scoop of my life. It begins with a disgruntled member of the power structure, eager to unload on his bureaucratic rivals, looking for a journalist to serve as an unwitting accomplice. Seymour Hersh, the greatest investigative journalist of his age, who produced 40 New York Times front page Watergate investigations just over two months in 1973, had this explanation for what was going on that year. Nixon was being fed to the wolves by his friends and enemies. You really... Don't want to make unnecessary enemies. You want to maximize your friends. You want to minimize people's incentives to damage you. And you want to maximize people's incentives to either leave you alone or to help you. So, the most curious aspect of the Watergate scandal we still don't know many of the basic facts about the burglary that gave rise to it. What were the burglars looking for? Who ordered them into the building? Who on the burglary team knew what? No one was ever charged with ordering the break in. No one has ever confessed or presented conclusive evidence one direction or another, about what exactly did the, did the burglars hope to accomplish that night, right? What, what really was their agenda?
1: Joe Biden is expected to gleefully sign it very soon. 40 billion 11 Republican senators voted against it in the House. 57 Republicans opposed the bill. One of them was Texas Congressman Chip Roy. Here's why he said he voted against it.
5: When I hear the majority leader of the other party say, quote, a time of war, when I sat with the majority leader in a rules committee meeting upstairs and he said, we're at war and I'm wondering when we voted to go to war. If people, if we're going to have a proxy war and we're going to give $40 billion to Ukraine because we want to look all fancy with our blue and yellow ribbons and feel good about ourselves, Maybe we should actually have a debate in this chamber, a debate in this body, because the American people expect us to do that.
1: So that's the majority of you in the country. That's what most people think. It's not at all what the leaders of both parties think. And they are absolutely united in this. Ukraine's borders are not just more important than our borders, but they're so much more important that they're spending 10x protecting Ukraine than what they're spending protecting this country from fentanyl pouring in and human trafficking, because that's what they care about. Chip Roy is the man you just saw from Texas. He joins us tonight. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Um, so w-
0: you were one of really- Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Back to the Watergate story. So Richard Nixon's men alluded constantly to the skullduggery of previous administrations like Kennedy and LBJ. So the private investigation firm started by retired New York City cop Jack Caulfield was conceived as the Republican equivalent of the Democratic-friendly Intertel, a storied, dark arts investigative firm founded by veterans of Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department. LBJ asked the FBI to tap the phones of Nixon's fundraiser and campaign advisor, Anna Chino, whom he suspected of having an opened a back channel to Vietnamese leaders. Henry Kissinger called for wiretaps to find those who leaked the Pentagon Papers which were stolen from the RAND Corporation, Admiral Thomas Mora, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, nervous about the direction of Nixon and Kissinger's Vietnam policy, ordered a young liaison to steal top secret papers from Kissinger at the National Security Council. Bob Woodward had recently worked for Mora at the Pentagon. So this context is useful. It explains the leeway that Richard Nixon took in his spying and surveillance operations, explains why the system came crashing down on him as it did, Nixonites believed they were victims of a double standard, and they were. This was also a time when many ordinary citizens were growing a at the prerogatives of the imperial presidency. So the Nixonites happened to be in office when the Kemmel's back broke, when the Washington establishment was able to rally the public behind the position that domestic spying and gross corruption had gone on long enough. So it's unlikely that anything could have saved Richard Nixon. Very early on, all the forces of Washington began to align against him, and a similar thing happened with Donald Trump. You really don't want everyone aligning against you. Now, there are many novel forces unleashed by the litigative revolution of the 1960s, against which no reliable defense has yet been devised. This is in large part thanks to civil rights legislation in 1965. The release of the Pentagon Papers emboldened the press. It glamorized their skepticism. So the FBI detail 26 agents to the watergate case they worked efficiently to uncover watergate from the start investigators benefited structurally from the composition of washington dc grand juries which were unanimously democratic so you have to know who you're up against what you're dealing with what the dangers are house judiciary committee's legal team pursued nixon had more than 100 lawyers they had subpoena power resting in the hands of democrats alone the special prosecutor's office treated the watergate cover-up as an Ordinary organized crime case, right? This is a totally self-interested redefinition with real juridical consequences. It allowed prosecutors to engage in the corner cutting enabled by the newly passed RICO Act. So essentially all the elites lined up against... Nixon, as I did, Talking about Donald Washington,
1: D.C., with the other Washington, the other side of the country, Washington State. How are things going in Washington State tonight? Well, some gas stations there are reprogramming their price boards to accept double digits because they anticipate gasoline hitting $10 a gallon. But the governor of the state, Jansley, is refusing to do anything about this, not even suspending the gas tax for a single second because you must be punished. Jason Rance is our man in the Pacific Northwest. He joins us tonight on this story. Hey, Jason. Hey, yeah, Washington
0: could be in store, unfortunately, for $10 a gallon gas. Okay, Washington could be in store for $10 a gallon gas. Shocking. Horrifying. Okay. So we have prosecutors using RICO to cut corners assume guilt by association and bear down for years groundlessly on Richard Nixon's personal friends. You have the IRS auditing Richard Nixon, assessing back payments for irregularities in the way he donated his presidential papers to the National Archives. So nothing could have stopped the momentum to remove Nixon from office once every institution in American life was arrayed against him. Confidence of his pursuers in their own righteousness rendered them tiresome, but utterly invincible. Reminds me very much about what happened to Donald Trump so Watergate introduced a whole new system for disciplining the country's chief executive, It developed a whole new balance of constitutional forces for all of Americans' pride in their constitutional arrangements, striking in the nearly two and a half centuries since the writing of the Constitution, the vast majority of new democracies have opted not for the presidential or congressional system that Americans invented, but for the prime ministerial parliamentary system that they abandoned. So now impeachment's become a routine way of trying to change a presidential administration. Democrats tried to impeach Ronald Reagan for minor irregularities, the margins of the country's Nicaragua policy. Republicans impeached Bill Clinton for a tryst. Democrats impeached Donald Trump twice, once for a sleazy phone call and once for a demonstration by his supporters that turned into a riot. So what can you do when the elites are arrayed against you? You can't do much when the elites are arrayed against you.
1: Themselves. Because schools have really gone that far. And we know how far they've gone because of the reporting of Chris Rufo. in a lot of cases. He's reporting that the school district in Philadelphia, the city schools, invited teachers to attend training sessions on the following topics. Kink, BDSM, transsex, and, quote, banging beyond binaries. Now, for some reason, the teacher training has included sexual
6: role-playing as well. I'm not guessing because it's on tape. Watch. I think for tonight i'm really wanting to feel cared for but also get punished a little bit mm-hmm. um so i so i don't i i want i want like a lot of praise and i'm i'm feeling like you're you're a good boy so this is how the game's going to work is that we're going to drop into the chat different words that we like to hear for bodies um, that are not gendered. So we have bits, we have any, an Audi, front hole, junk, goodies, package. We have more. Let's keep going. Oh yeah. Um, equipment, back hole, sweet spot. We have hundreds of words that we can use to talk about our bodies that make us feel really connected and don't add to our dysphoria, that don't make us feel like triggered or out of our bodies.
1: These people are mentally ill, obviously. At the training, a trans activist called Chase Ross discussed prosthetic genitalia. What we're about to see was directed to minors. We have blurred the images of the prosthetic genitalia. Watch. This is what it looks like, and it is pretty small. I actually really like this
7: prosthetic because it does leave a nice small bulge in that if you're like a smaller person or if you're a kid and you want a prosthetic that's a little bit smaller, like this is the way to go.
1: We know this exists because of Chris Rufo, who's really hated for it, by the way, but admired by us. He's a journalist and a filmmaker. He joins us tonight. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. You can see why people are just giving up uh, on the schools. What, what exactly was that that we watched?
5: Sure. This is the Philadelphia Trans Wellness Conference, and uh, the administrators from the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Philadelphia Public Schools invited all the teachers in the district to attend. They promoted it. They offered to uh, help with some coordinating assistance, Uh, and this conference was really shocking. They were encouraging minors who attended the conference uh, to start with puberty blockers. Uh, One doctor who attended said he'd performed 2,000 top surgeries in which he removed the breasts of healthy young women. Uh, charging $10,000 a pop, so he's earned uh, up to $20 million uh, uh, in revenues uh, by doing this this surgery. Then you had kind of uh, sex toys and other uh, artificial ejaculation devices uh, that were exhibited. Uh, really strange and deranged for any adult, uh, but really, truly shocking and frankly disgusting uh, to be directing this towards minors with the
1: encouragement of taxpayer dollars and the public schools. I mean, it's just a few years ago that feminists were against female genital mutilation. And now, of course, they're totally uh, on board with it. Um, so, so the school district is paying for this. Tax dollars meant to educate your kids are going instead to lectures about prosthetic genitalia. The school district didn't pay for this. This was
5: actually run by an outside nonprofit called the Matsoni Center, which has actually contracted with the district for other services They actually help with sex education for minors, for K-12 through students uh, in the Philadelphia public schools, the same people who ran this conference, and actually dug into the financials for this organization. Last year alone, this organization that was running this conference received more than $5 million in government contracts. So taxpayers across the state of Pennsylvania likely are subsidizing this kind of content that's then being used for continuing education credits for healthcare professionals, for teachers. What you see is the kind of trans ideology movement has attached itself to taxpayer funding,
1: attached itself to public institutions, and they're directly targeting your kids. Very quick, and thank you for all this, Chris. Um, We had an election in Pennsylvania two days ago. Did any of the candidates on either side mention this at all?
5: They did not, but uh, they should because this is absolutely a public policy issue. This is an issue facing kids, and unfortunately, unless it's stopped, you're going to have this kind of horrific ideology entering public schools, going down to those very early grades, including kindergarten.
1: Where are all the men, you know, to stop? Someone needs to say no. Um, I appreciate all the work you do. Chris Rufo. thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. We will be right back.
0: Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Appreciate all the, all the work that you do. Thank you. Okay. I've got some classic orange crystal light in me uh, uh, revved up for, for the next story. Maybe we should talk about Rod Dreyer, about a day in the culture war. Oh, man. Here we go. So I've never been a, a big uh, Rod Dreyer fan, but I, I should probably read him a little bit more. Day in the culture war. There's some hardcore democratic craziness on Capitol Hill yesterday. Here's Amy Arambide, a Democratic witness before a House committee at a hearing on abortion rights.
5: So, so abortion should be allowed then, by your definition, for any reason, for any purpose, at any stage, right?
8: I trust people to make decisions about their body, and then, when relevant, I think that they need to consult their medical p- practitioners. Okay.
4: And not is, Congress. If it is, listen,
5: let me just ask you this question: If it is not lawful and morally acceptable to take the life of a ten-year-old child, I assume you agree with that, right? That would be wrong, correct?
0: I believe that. Okay. That is and wrong. a
5: two year old child, same thing. That would be murder. We would all agree that is wrong. Then, what is the principal distinction between the human being that is two years old, or nine months old, or one week old, or an hour old, than one that is eight inches further up the birth canal in the uterus? What is the difference? Why is it okay in the latter case and not the former
8: cases? I trust people to determine what to do with their own bodies. Wow. Full stop.
0: I not agree with her moral stand, but she's quite pretty.
4: Um, what do you say a woman is?
8: I believe that everyone can identify for themselves.
4: Okay. Um, do, do you believe, then, that men can become pregnant and have abortions? Yes.
0: Powerful. And uh, don't forget the Star Wars Pride Collection Spirit Jersey for Kids, just $55. And this wonderful ad from Calvin Klein. "Work capitalism, our most culturally revolutionary force. Andrea, God forbid, disavow, says, I don't want to share a society with any of these people. Not the people in this image, not the people who made these images. Not the people who profit from images like this. They are destroying us. Okay, how can Republicans create a counter elite? Interesting article here by Jeremy Carl from Claremont. So he says, amidst the dark cloud of the GOP's 2020 election defeat, many post mortems pointed to a silver lining the substantial growth of GOP support among working class minorities and immigrants. Yes. This growth was often heralded in outlets normally quite hostile to the GOP and its interests. Is, is that a tell? GOP is really assembling the multiracial working-class coalition that the left has always dreamed of, says David Shaw, a Democratic operative who was a leading Obama advisor. So yes, we should welcome an expanded electoral base. The narrative of multicultural working-class-led GOP is a briar patch that the often dim-witted GOP leadership should avoid. This narrative presents two dangers to the party. First, in its laudable efforts to reach out to minorities, the GOP may well abandon or attack the legitimate interests of its existing, predominantly white, voter base. And second, that in focusing its efforts building a working-class coalition, it will alienate the elites, like Kyle, that it ultimately needs to win over to govern successfully. So, contrary to David Shaw, a multi-racial working-class coalition, much like the current GOP's white and increasingly working-class base, would be completely incapable of exercising decisive political power, even if it won elections. So Donald Trump won, but he wasn't particularly effective at wielding power. To change the GOP's losing dynamic, the party must reach out to a portion of the hated elites, because without, without support of some of the meaningful portion of those elites, be unable to effectively govern the modern American state, no matter how many elections it wins, just like Rupert Murdoch has reached out to part of the Jewish community, the, the neocons, those who are open to a centrist or a right wing and and made coalition and funded you know a portion of the Jewish community because Rupert Murdoch knows that if the entire Jewish community is mobilized against him, he's not going to be able to succeed. So he's peeled off about a quarter of the Jewish community. So the dramatic recent moves by Elon Musk to take over Twitter and reopen it as a platform on which conservatives can speak freely after years of legislative failure and largely fruitless grassroots organizing against big tech, shows the decisive power of elites in our politics. Yes, think about everything that Republicans tried to do vis-a-vis big tech and what seems to be a much more effective takeover by Elon Musk if it happens. While the GOP should strive to be the party of middle and working class interests, it should do so in the model of Benjamin Disraeli's one-nation Toryism. So one nation means that we're a people... And we can exert ourselves against a dominating elite or administrative state that acts against our interests. So one nation tourism dominated late 19th century British politics, the elites there consciously made efforts to transcend class interests, and to govern in the interests of the whole nation. So apparently, Richard Spencer going up against Dixon Hammer tonight on the Ethan Ralph kill stream. So let me know when that starts. J.D. Vance's GOP primary win in Ohio was largely built on his appeal to working class Republicans. It's a little bit like the alt right. The alt right's led by atheists, but almost all its supporters are Christian. So the GOP's support may largely come from the working class, but you need to be able to peel off a section of the elites if you want to get something done. So J.D. Vance's focus on the real needs of working class Americans is a laudable model for the party. It's not that focus that will make J.D. Vance an effective power broker. So Greg Johnson, a countercurrent, deliberately chooses to just appeal to elites. He's not trying to create a working-class Matt Heimbach type of movement. So it's not the J.D. Vance of the holler, but the J.D. Vance of Yale Law, the venture capitalist with deep connections to billionaire Peter Thiel, media powerhouse Tucker Carlson, his wife was a clerk for Chief Justice John Roberts, who can exercise power within the American system. So as the writer and conservative podcaster Alex Kishuda wrote, all politics is elite politics. The only thing that changes is the client class and their level of obligation felt towards it. So GOP's core deplorables who are typically whiter, more rural, predominantly middle and working class, often not college educated, represent a declining demographic with less and less access to the power structure with each passing year. Depending on these voters to lead a new right-wing coalition is a losing strategy. Now, reaching out to a multicultural and working-class coalition is good, will not solve the GOP's problems in the corridors of power. The poor white voters of Appalachia cannot meaningfully assume political leadership in 2022. Neither can the poor Hispanic voters of South Texas, among whom Trump performed so strongly in 2020. So Trump accelerated GOP's problem among American elites, but this problem preceded him by many years, as evident even when he was not on the ballot. So 26 of the 27 wealthiest congressional districts are represented by Democrats. Trump won white suburbanites by four points in 2020, sharply down from his 16-point win in 2016. That's where Trump lost the election, with white suburbanites. Now he increased his rural vote share from 59% to 65%. His vaunted gains among Hispanics were achieved down market. So he won 41% of non-college-educated Hispanics, only 30% of college-educated Hispanics. So Trump beat Joe Biden at 65-33 among white non-college voters. He lost white college grads 57 to 40. And that number is certainly worse among graduates of the top-tier colleges from which the elite draw their leadership. Against Hillary Clinton in 2016, Trump won 56% of white voters who make $100,000 a year or less, but lost 53% of white voters making $175,000 or more. Millionaires favored Joe Biden 56 to 39 and even these dire numbers above overstate true elite support for the GOP. In most of the key institutions of our society, the right is almost non-existent. Most prestigious newspapers favored Biden unanimously. Polls of liberal arts faculty have shown a 12 to 1 disparity in support for Biden over Trump. At Harvard, more than 99% of faculty donations went to Biden. Only 2% of faculty voted for Trump. Harvard, 99% of student donation money went to Joe Biden. in tech, Industry at the commanding heights of our current culture, 98% of corporate donations went to Democrats. Joe Biden took 92% of the vote in the city of Washington, D.C., 80% in inner suburbs like Arlington, Alexandria. Only 5% of senior civil servants are conservative Republicans. Same story in Hollywood, where 99.7% of donations from the top Hollywood power players went to Democrats. So... James Burnham published an influential book in 1941, The Managerial Revolution, about the future post-industrial world, how we'll get a managerial class that will control the commanding heights of the economy and society, displacing the previous ruling class of petty bourgeois capitalists, the lower middle class. So his vision has been vindicated. So how can we mount a counter-revolution against the managerial class? So number one, we have to accept reality. Right, except the low place we currently occupy in America's power hierarchy. Understand ourselves as fundamentally dissident movements seeking to supplant the existing managerial order. By failing to correctly recognize the nature of the managerial elite and its sources of power, the right's opposition has been misdirected. The effect of recent conservative policy, whatever its intent, has been the strengthening of the managerial class. But the managerial elite can only be displaced by a counter elite, one comparable in talents and abilities to so the current elite. That whose interests are not being served by the current regime. So George Will wrote in the wake of Reagan's election that Goldwater won in 1964. It just took 16 years to count the vote. But looking at today's political landscape, it would be more accurate to say that George McGovern, Democratic candidate who was blown out by Richard Nixon in 1972, won his election. It just took half a century to count the votes. Our current political battle space bears far more resemblance to George McGovern's radical interest group-based left-wing politics than it does to Reagan's 1980s reign. So as emotionally appealing as Barry Goldwater's politics were for the frustrated right, his candidacy was a strategic disaster for the right's political priorities. They ushered in an era of liberal hegemony, hegemony, which is only interrupted, not altered, by Reagan's two terms in office. So Barry Goldwater highlighted the dangers of attacking the elite without developing a viable counter-elite to replace it with. So where might we find the counter-elite today? By far, the richest prize to win from the Democrats because of the demographic size and its current institutional power outside of politics and its alienation from the Democratic power Party power centers is white men. So Republicans can appeal to elite white men by showing them that the Democrats' class and cultural claims on them are swamped by the overwhelming racial discrimination they suffer under the Democratic regime. Elite white voters who support the Democrats are supporting a party that rhetorically despises them and works against their fundamental interests. Contrast the treatment of white men within the Democratic Party, the status of white men outside of the Democratic Party politics. Today, white men make up more than 85% of Fortune 500 CEOs. They're 60% of the population, but they hoard 86% of household wealth. 90% of published American authors are white. Looking at successful unicorn startups, those that have achieved more than 1 billion market value as private companies, 77% of the founders were white. The 40 best uh, venture capital investments of all time showed that almost all of them were done by white men. So a party that relentlessly marginalizes a successful and numerous group should not long be able to remain in power long as that group is offered an attractive alternative, the GOP must create this attractive alternative for elite whites. The white working class is a declining social and political force. Minority working classes are rising in numbers, but they have even less cultural and political clout. Managerial classes ruled America for decades, whether their representatives are in or out of office. Only a counter elite can challenge our current managerial masters And it is to the unashamed development and cultivation of that counter-elite, particularly among white voters excoriated by the democratic regime, that the right must devote the lion's share of its political energies. That's from the American Conservative.
7: Let's Whoa, go! It it's the America First Civil War. It's Nick Fuentes and Beards in the Hobbit with the Road Dog versus CWT, Red Pill Gaming, Gandalf for fuck's sake. It's an exciting edition of the People's Populist Press as we get the update you've all been waiting for on Nick Fuentes and the status of his movement. Spoiler folks, it's in a downward spiral. And in our second segment, Get ready. It's the battle. Years in the making. The new Project 2 Snake Pit finally dissolved into fucking
0: nothing. Nick Ricada and Ethan Ralph going at his hammer and tongs. Who will prevail in the blood feud? Will Ralph go to jail? Oh man, this is low tier content.
7: Sousa has escalated the feud with Tucker Carlson. Honestly, I don't know how much you can call it a feud because Tucker hasn't said anything In response. So it's just like D'Souza repeatedly taking shots at Carlson. Dinesh D'Souza escalates his feud with Tucker Carlson and Fox, demanding a public apology. Quote With Fox, things aren't the way it seems. There's Tucker. Behind the scenes, these people are nasty. They're vicious. They try to strong arm you. All right, so let's see what he has to say
8: important point to realize here is that with Fox News, with a lot of things, things aren't the way it seems. You know, I look on social media, there's Tucker, he's sort of, he's wearing his fisherman's jacket, he's got the aw shucks attitude, he's one of the guys. But behind the scenes, this is how these people operate. They're nasty, they're vicious, uh, they threaten you, they try to strong arm you. They threaten you?
7: Tucker Carlson or his producers are not threatening Dinesh D'Souza, that is definitely
8: not accurate. It's be it's our way or the highway. It's let us steal your trailer, pretend it's our content, and if you if you object, you know you're banned permanently from the show. I mean, this is a very dysfunctional way of operating. So at the very least, I think it's decent. If you
0: uh, steal your trailer, you mean they played it on on your show and did you a big a big favor, and and you're going off. I mean, Dinesh D'Souza is wacky here
8: want to ask me what the next step is to issue a public apology um, and say, hey, listen, we treated this guy badly. We shouldn't have done it this way. Um, and so I'm appealing to Suzanne Scott, the um, who's the head of Fox, uh, to introduce not just some discipline, but some civility into something that has, I think, quite clearly gone off the rails. Oh, I love this. I love this so much.
7: First of all, I don't believe him, that there's, there were threats or whatever. They want to run your trailer without giving you credit or take credit. Like, what are you talking about? When you release a movie?
0: Now, Tucker just sends off a vibe of happiness uh dinesh d'Souza doesn't exactly radiate happiness
7: we like this you want that shit to run on fox news you want it to run everywhere that you have ideological agreement with people like newsmax News? What, what are you talking about what are you talking about so tucker allowed on the person who came up with a bogus theory in his film two thousand mules about the election being rigged that person was allowed on fox news and was allowed on tucker carlson's show to promote the claims but she wasn't allowed to bring up the movie now i don't know why that is There's a whole bunch of speculation around that that I've given. You know, one thing is we know One American News Network and Newsmax and even Fox News were threatened with lawsuits or actually sued by Dominion, the the voting machine company. There were all these conspiracies around Dominion that, like, Venezuela and Maduro were controlling them and trying to steal the election for Biden, and Dominion sued. And they were like, this is defamatory. This is libel. This is slander. It's not okay. We're going to fight back. And they ended up, uh, I don't know if they won the cases, but the cases proceeded in courts. So there was merit to the cases. And so I think you had the network sort of course correct after that, knowing that we could be sued out of existence if we keep going down this path. So a lot of the election conspiracy stuff has sort of died out in mainstream media for that reason. For That's one of many reasons, probably. Another thing is I think Tucker probably wants to maintain some semblance of his normie card. You know, um, what Tucker does well that other right-wing charlatans don't do well is that he masks his extreme conservatism in many respects and comes across as more populist, even though it's fake and can reach an audience that's wider than just right wing cranks. He could also, you know, get to some independents and moderates. And so he's better at that tap dance than guys like Dinesh D'Souza. You know, everybody knows what Dinesh D'Souza is. Everybody knows he's like the far right version of Michael Moore and he's a total partisan hack. And he's, by the way, liar and convicted fraudster. It's so funny. He didn't, he did a movie, movie documentary exposing election fraud when he was convicted on election fraud. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, come on, bro. Have, have you no self-awareness at all? Like, none. Apparently, he doesn't have any self-awareness. But this idea of, like, uh, I need a public apology for... Bro- for what? For what? Uh, hey, Dinesh, have you considered your movie is absolutely bogus? Your movie is trash. By the way, I'm gonna plug... Um, Crystal, on Breaking Points, did a great monologue about... She watched the entire Dinesh D'Souza movie. She went through a bunch of the claims, and she lays out in detail why it is beyond a bogus theory. It's as stupid as stupid gets. Of course, the facts I always add to the conversation are this. There were over 60 court cases about the election being rigged or stolen. Virtually everyone was lost by Trump and his team. Even Republican judges said this stuff is absurd. Uh, Biden won the election. Even Trump-appointed judges were like, this is not true. You're wrong. Get out of here. They did the Arizona audit where all the election was rigged, people thought. As soon as we audit this election, it's a wrap. We're going to know that Trump actually won Arizona. Not only did Biden win it, he won it by more than what we thought on election day. So your theory is wrong. It is not true. And so...
0: So Alice from Queens has a great tweet. You know what the real great replacement is? It's butts over boobs. So, yeah, when did this country move from a breast-focused country to a butt-focused country? I I don't understand the fixation with butts. To to me, it is it is regressive, it is un-American, it is primitive, it is beacol-focused, it's disgusting. So that's the great replacement we should be talking about, butts over boobs. All right, so I, I don't take uh, Dinesh D'Souza seriously. I, I think he's he's a low-rent hack.
7: What D'Souza is trying to do here, ironically, is strong-arm all of conservative media to get on the page of promoting his shitty movie. His absolutely grotesque and incorrect and pathetic movie. So he's doing the thing he's accusing Tucker of doing. Now, I don't know. There might be bad blood behind the scenes in one respect or another. D'Souza and Tucker might not like each other from some weird internal reason. Um, but...
0: De- okay, so Rod Rea has a good uh, good column a couple of days ago on Tucker Carlson not surrendering. Yeah, good on Tucker Carlson for standing up and not surrendering. So Rod says, I'm thrilled Tucker Carlson isn't doing the usual right-wing thing and crumpling in the face of bad faith attacks from the media and the Democrats. So watch this 15-minute monologue from Monday night, throwing the great replacement smears back in their faces. So Carlson points out that a Syrian immigrant shooter went into a border Colorado supermarket market and murdered 10 people, the same number of dead as in Buffalo. But Joe Biden didn't fly to that crime scene. Why not? Because the mass shooting did not fit the narrative. He was a person of color, not a white supremacist. Then you have all these democratic politicians celebrating the non white immigration, how it's diluting white voting power. And Carlson smokes. So you play clips of Democrats saying it, and you're the deranged conspiracy nuts. You don't want people to be paranoid and angry. Maybe you don't write pieces like that, rub it in their face, and give them the finger day after day. So the left is totally gaslighting us on the Great Replacement thing. If you believe that whites are being displaced politically by immigration and the growth of non-white communities, and that is a good thing, you are fine to say that. But if you believe that and you think it's bad or even neutral, well, then you are a white supremacist who encourages loonies to commit mass murder. And then Tucker brought up this story from 2013 in in Politico, but let's just play this again.
1: Them ...to get, quote, educated on the internet, but it's someone else's fault that they're, quote, alienated. They've been hearing about the great replacement theory.
0: Okay, and then he shows story from 2013 Politico. Immigration form could be a bonanza for the Democrats. Immigration proposal pending in Congress would transform the nation's political landscape for a generation or more, bumping as many as 11 million new Hispanic voters into the election a decade from now in ways that would produce an electoral bonanza for Democrats and cripple Republican prospects in many states they now win easily. So there are all these brass tax partisan calculations driving the thinking of lawmakers in both parties over comprehensive immigration reform. These people have been voting... On the voting rolls in 2012, voting along the same lines, Barack Obama's relatively narrow, narrow victory last fall would have been considerably wider. So if you notice the great replacement from a progressive or neutral point of view, it's fine. But if you notice this as a conservative and you say you don't like it, then you are a racist. Remember the headline from Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times? We can't replace them. In Georgia, a chance to rebuke white nationalism. So she essentially concedes white nationalist talking points. Right now, America is tearing itself apart as an embittered white majority minority clings to power, terrified at being swamped by a new multiracial polyglot majority. The divide feels especially stark in Georgia, where the midterm election is a battle between Trumpist reaction and the multicultural America whose emergence the right is trying at all costs to forestall. Stacey Abrams' goal is to put together a coalition of African-American minority voters and white liberals. American voters can do to white nationalists, what they fear most show them that they're being replaced. So you can't have it both ways, liberal media. Uh, you you can't, you know, try to blame these murders on Tucker Carlson and, and Fox News, at the same time, use the exact same arguments in your favor. I mean, that's what affirmative action and quota hiring do, they do discriminate against whites. So The left celebrate things that actively stigmatize and discriminate against people on the basis of race, sex, and sexual orientation. But if you're one of those who's been stigmatized and discriminated against and you don't agree that you deserve it, then you're a bigot for saying so. So there were political uh, entities, states, cities that did try to ration vaccines and coronavirus treatments and discriminate against white people. So there's a January 7th Wall Street Journal op-ed from two left-wing academics noting New York State recently published guidelines for dispensing potentially life-saving treatments. Sick people who have tested positive for COVID should be eligible to receive these drugs. But if you're non-white, right, that should be considered a risk factor. So non-white person gets preferential treatment for potentially life-saving drugs. So the racial lens on COVID disparities is inadequate a broader lens would include class factors, but would be unlikely to suggest to public health officials that the Indian American CEOs of alphabet and Microsoft ought to get priority over white Walmart clerks and hospital orderlies who should receive scarce COVID treatment should be based on genuine medical risk factors such as age and comorbidity. So Democrats seem determined to ignore class divisions want to divide the country up on the basis of race and ethnicity. Is an observation from any of Arc. In two thousand six I identified as left wing. When I went to live in Texas, it became apparent the state would be purple and then blue within the next twenty years. My friends and I would delightedly chuckle about this, though I quite quickly started to laugh a little quieter. Remember what happened to my lower middle class neighborhood flooded by immigration a few years earlier. Years passed, I was less and less able to avert my eyes or close my ears. My life is full of lovely wealthy liberals, all of whom gloated and boasted about demographic change leading to blue party dominance. They brag about themselves moving to places like North Carolina to turn it blue. They sneer about the parochialism of the locals, but the colonists are proudly saying they hate them. They're attempting to dispossess them and then want them to be congratulated for it. So The sins and virtues of all people are more than enough to contemplate in the complexity for many lifetimes, but the particular Colonization techniques of elite liberalism leave a particular feeling of disgust in my mouth. Colonialism is alive and thriving and they will shriek for your banishment if you notice the very thing that they were bragging about 90 seconds ago let's get some Amy Wax here talking with Joseph Cato and Paul Godfrey. From the audience,
3: from Dr. Bob. Shalom, Dr. Wax. As an almost out-of-training young physician, I am weighing whether to go into academics or private practice slash industry. I publish a lot and like med students, but my political slash religious views are verboten. What advice would you give?
9: Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. Um, my husband's an academic physician, so I get a lot of belly aching about what's happening in the, in academia, medical academia. But if you like medical students, that's a big plus. I mean, a lot of people are scared of medical students because they're so vigilant about monitoring any every professor for the slightest infraction that they might commit against, you know, woke vocabulary, woke ideology. Uh, if you haven't encountered that yet, I guess you're maybe one of the lucky ones or it doesn't bother you. I don't know. Um, uh, It really depends on how accommodating you want to be to this D.I.E. takeover of medicine, because it is proceeding apace in research priorities, in the kinds of projects people work on, in the people who are valued, uh, not people like you, uh, the people who are admitted, who are recruited for fellowships, for junior professorships. Um, It's really infecting everything. I mean, one of the questions is what kind of job you could get and, you know, whether you could even be hired. But if you could be hired and keep your nose clean and not work on anything that's controversial the more basic science
0: it- okay let's get some life wisdom from millennial was
2: Opposed, quite diametrically opposed um but in in that you know did provoke some interest in me and i was thinking oh maybe i should see this for myself so that i can decide so who knows i, I would expect that i will see it at some point soon um i mean it's interesting that it seems to have happened almost by accident. Uh, You wonder how how did this happen? Uh, Anyway, okay. Uh, Rai asks, I know you are no longer on good terms with Richard Spencer, and I know he maybe wasn't very nice to you or about you, but I was wondering if you'd consider extending an olive branch for the sake of content and doing a stream with him. The reason I want this is because I think it'd be fascinating to hear you guys discuss your ideological differences, given recent developments. When was the last time you talked? 2018? A lot has happened since then, and wherever that convo would lead, it would be interesting. Um, I think the last time we god yeah i think it was 2018 i think you're right or maybe 2017 i know that he didn't appear on millennial the last time he appeared on millennial was 2016 but i think and we fell out before 2017 millennial then we got talking again but then we'd fallen out by the time 2018 millennial happened and we've never reconciled since then but it was really i mean it wasn't a big deal and i don't want people to you know it's just wait we uh and it wasn't even a an ideological disagreement it was just a, a social thing um so it was nothing serious and I, i've heard him saying some disparaging things about me since then which disappointed me because i thought he was better than that I really i thought Ugh, that's a, that should be beneath you richard but whatever um I, and i agree with you that we probably would have an interesting conversation but i don't know how much of what he says is sincere and how much of it is just him delighting and being contrarian but i remember i, I did enjoy i mean i did enjoy talking to him we did have a good dynamic in conversation i thought but yeah, I mean, I, I can't see it happening, I'm afraid. Uh, sorry to let you down, but I, I just, I think that he's made a decision about many people and I'm one of them. And I, I don't, you know, it doesn't upset me or anything. It doesn't get me down. It's just one of those things. People, you know, the, people fall out all the time. It just happens.
0: Um, seasons change. Oh, right. And then you also change.
2: ask what I think about his new ideological direction, voting for Biden, COVID support, vaccine support, uh, not being pro-Russia or pro-Putin, being pro uh, quasi-defending NATO and Ukraine, saying he kind of understands the need for censorship of misinformation, et cetera. I saw someone saying he's bowing down to the establishment. Well, I've seen some people saying that he's trying to get in with the, the mainstream. That I mean, I don't think that will ever happen, and I think he must know that. So I don't think he's trying to get in with the mainstream. I think he's just trying to distance himself a lot from his former colleagues or whatever you'd say. um And, and that probably does inform some of his stances on these various issues you've listed. But I wouldn't want to say that it's wholly like he's just doing whatever will annoy people most, because that would be. I think he's, he's more intelligent than that. I think he's more thoughtful than that. And I think he has genuinely thought himself into this position where he's basically a Democrat who is a bit racist. But he's not a, a dumpling. And I, I would never suggest that about him because it would simply be untrue. I uh, COVID support, vaccine support, I think that was part of... I mean, people had a choice to make with with the COVID thing. Do I want to be an outsider? With, you know, with a, like a flashing light on the top of my head saying outsider. Or do I want to just go along with the mainstream and seem like a normal person on this issue and i think quite a few people made the latter choice because they just didn't they just didn't want the trouble they just didn't want the hassle of being a tinfoil hat wearer on this matter because partly perhaps because they just felt it was not that important an issue early on when they nailed their colors to the mast or perhaps because as it unfolded they they realized how much of an outsider it would make them to oppose this stuff it it would really mark you out um so they just didn't want to do that because you, you would come across as a tinfoil hat wearer and uh you know, nobody wants to to come across as a tinfoil hat waiter so i think p- some people spencer included probably made this decision look i'm not going to be one of those fucking anti-vaxxers i'm not going to be one of these people ranting about the world economic forum and Klaus schwab when i can just be normal and go along with the mainstream narrative which isn't that preposterous i mean there's it, it a pandemic and we do need a vaccine to get rid of the pandemic. It's fairly logical so i'll just go along with it um, and i'll tell my i'll talk myself into believing it
0: Okay, you're probably wondering, what does uh, Ted Cruz have to say? A moment ago,
7: the senator from Virginia made a a reference to election deniers, which is yet another uh, interesting bit of nomenclature that Democrats have adopted. I find it interesting that that apparently now Democrats are denouncing Hillary Clinton. They're denouncing Stacey Abrams because Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams both maintain the election was stolen from them. Stacey Abrams apparently thinks she is still the governor. Uh, of georgia and that no election occurred and so the hypocrisy uh that that our democratic friends bring to this issue is truly stunning you know just a moment ago the senator from virginia made a a reference to election deniers which is yet another uh interesting bit of nomenclature that democrats have adopted i find it interesting that
0: okay thanks thanks ted and thank you for watching you are the real winner bye bye